Welcome to the AWS Health Innovation Podcast, where you can learn from entrepreneurs and investors who are driving progress in healthcare and life science across the globe. My name is Joe Schunkweiler. I'm a physician and former health tech executive. And my name is Alex Merwin. I'm an operations executive who's worked at two startups that exited as unicorns. And now Joe and I work with healthcare and life science startups and investors at AWS. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Sam Ascarian, Chief Medical Officer of Cypher Medicine, a company that uses a patient's individual molecular data to ensure optimal therapy is prescribed from day one. Dr. Ascarian and I discuss how Cypher Medicine grew out of the Human Genome Project, when it makes sense for a company to hire a Chief Medical Officer and what that person should do when they join, and why innovation in healthcare is so different from other industries and verticals. Enjoy. Dr. Sam Iscarian, Chief Medical Officer at Cypher Medicine. Thanks for joining me today. Thank you, Joe. Appreciate the opportunity. Just to start off, I'd love to hear a bit more about Cypher Medicine and what you all do. You bet. So Cypher Medicine was founded really off of the, the Human Genome Project. Our founders uh, from Brigham and Women's Hospital in Northeastern were really focused on mapping the genome. Unfortunately, when it got mapped, they asked the, the two-word question of now what? and really wanted to bring use cases into clinical practice, knowing what genes were mapping for what proteins. And at Cypher, we really built precision medicine tools and solutions around autoimmune disorder treatment. So in the previous world where a lot of folks who have these complex chronic diseases like rheumatoid arthritis have to face trial and error practice in medicine, we're developing tests that give physicians a lot more information about what's causing the root cause of that disease and therefore allowing them to select the right treatment for their patients. So it's really getting to value in your treatment much quicker and not just using what's out there with the best guess kind of thing. It's very well said. That's exactly right, right? No patient ever wants to hear their doctor state, that didn't work, let's try this. And so we're taking exactly, as you said, that part out of the practice of medicine and really turning it not from the practice of medicine, but the science of medicine. I know what's causing your autoimmune disease, specifically which branch of your immune system is overreacting. And I'm going to prescribe this treatment that targets just that branch. So you still have a strong immune system, which you need, but you don't have an overactive one, which is causing you all of these symptoms and all of these maladies that you're facing um, today. Sam, can you tell us a bit about your background and how you ended up doing this? Because it sounds like it's a really exciting way to get at personalizing the treatment, getting it more cost-effective, efficient treatment pathways. But how did you end up here? Yeah, no, I appreciate that. I think it's the typical Affordable Care Act inspiration story, right? So I went through this journey in the medicine and had ideas of really being a true large-scale primary care doctor. My goal was to really be preventive in the pursuit of practice. And when the Affordable Care Act passed, we all know there were so many different avenues around what preventive medicine means and this value-based care and pay for performance. And I, I, I became a little bit more in the vein of let's figure out what that means instead of let me then find out what that means. So I didn't, I wanted to be a part of all the reform. And I had an opportunity to leave clinical practice and join a healthcare consulting firm out of Boston that was really focused on healthcare reform. So I started to work with physicians. I started to work with health plans. I started to work with pharma companies that were trying to figure out what value was in medicine. And then that turned into this just lengthy journey of new products and solutions. That's what drives me, right? What are the new innovations that we need to change the delivery of healthcare? We can always have complaints about what's not working and not working, 
But the reality is just like in other industries, like finance is my favorite example, highly regulated environment. Everyone wants their information secure, but they want convenience and they want results. And so we used to go into a bank and we have to cash a check. Today, I hold my phone over the check. I don't even push the button to take the picture and that check is deposited. So those types of innovations are what I've always aspired to bring into medicine and to really make patients' lives much better at a larger scale than when I was a practicing physician. Your point about the Affordable Care Act driving um, basically a, a generation of clinicians to be more active. I always think of it as it went from being very abstract, the idea that there was a way the system worked and that you could change the way the system worked. And then it became very concrete, like things were actually happening to change that. And no matter where you were on those initial phases, it was, there's a discussion here, like go and be part of it. So I had a very similar pathway from the wards and the operating rooms into the halls of Congress and then out in the startup space. Love to hear a fellow traveler on that journey. Absolutely. And I think that's what I always love, right? There's all these different forces, those competitive forces, right? There's new entrants, but then there's the regulatory forces. And this kind of act with the branches of our government instilled not just capital into healthcare, but to your point, talent, right? So many more people, great minds from the clinics, people from outside the industry, right? So people now all of a sudden were excited about joining healthcare. And that gave you and I the opportunity to work with people that we never would have worked with, right? One of my favorite jobs was when all of a sudden I was working on patient level analytics mm. and programs for someone who previously ran Caesars and Harrah's Casino. <laughs> and there was never a scenario where the two of us were going to mix unless the Affordable Care Act became that forcing mechanism that brought us together. You referenced some of the extensive research that developed the scientific basis for Cypher. What's your sense of when that went from being a research endeavor to actually a standalone company? Because that special little spark is something that we've explored on the podcast previously. And I have a personal interest in, like when is this something where there's a core group that says, okay, this is not the kind of thing that I'm gonna continue with grants and postdocs, et cetera, but I'm gonna go out and raise money, go out and have investors on a cap table and try to generate revenue and turn this into a business. What was that like for Cypher? Can you give us a view into that? Absolutely. and and always know that I'm guilty of oversimplifying things. So what I'm about to explain was far more complicated than the way I'm about to explain it. But I think that our founders out of Brigham and out of Northeastern would tell you that the moment was we went from artifacts, right? Fun facts, things that we know, right? And, and novelties, right? I know what the human genome looks like. I can map it. And I think this one's a great example of it, right? The, the first products out of the human genome project were novelties, right? I could then find out if my lifelong addiction to pizza was whether or not I had Italian DNA in my blood or not, right? right. And, and, my sister. and that's not, that's great, but that doesn't help me from a health standpoint. The inflection point was when we came up with these really clear use cases that were derivatives of the human genome project. So it wasn't, what are the genes? Because the genes are just static, right? They don't do anything, right? It was the, the question that they answered was, what are these genes coding for? And so now you have true anatomy and physiology. So I know that the genes that are coding for proteins that are normal look like this. So that was one point where they still didn't say, let's, this is a company. But the part where they found out it was a company was the pathology of the genes that are coded when it's abnormal look like these types of proteins, right? So these are, in, and I'll be very specific for Cypher, these are inflammation markers that we see from gene expression that looks like this in the blood. 
And if I see those types of inflammation markers in the blood, that means I know how to target the genes that are overacting or the, the RNA that they're expressing to shut down those proteins, right? right? That becomes a clear use case to where exactly what you said, you can create not just the use case, but the business case off of it. You can create a financial model off of it. You can create a funding mechanism to turn that idea into a business. And that's the inflection point that we saw at Cypher that moved us from academic, which was phenomenal academics, right? And tons of publications to a true business entity that has generated staff and products and a lot of momentum. And why start with autoimmune disease? Is it that inflammation markers were readily apparent? What was guiding you toward that specific area? So the best part of that answer is it's the two part. One is the clinical need, right? So it's what you said. We know that there are a lot more folks being diagnosed with these autoimmune disorders, right? We're solving the simple chronic pretty well. We're not solving complex chronic, right? So these types of complex chronic diseases see a lot of debilitation. They see a lot of loss of productivity and they see a lot of waste. And that's the second part, the economic model, right? We know that there's billions of dollars spent in this disease area. And just like a lot of things that in our healthcare system that we know is inefficient, they're wasted spend, right? People are not getting better. Yes, they're on a drug, but it's not actually impacting their disease. They're still progressing. They may not progress as fast, but if you have some of these autoimmune disorders, you want it to stop. You want to go under remission. Mm-hmm. And we're not seeing remission, even though we're seeing increased drug spend and we're seeing increased medical spend. So the combination of those two really made it clear that autoimmune was a great area. It's, it's a clinically viable area. We know that the products can work in this area. We know that there's medical and patient need. And we know there's a financial incentive for the healthcare system to solve this problem. And it doesn't prevent you from going into other areas, obviously. It seems like that's an initial focus, but it's a bridge, not a destination in a lot of ways. And it's what you said. If you're generating money and you're getting investment dollars, you want to show results quickly, right? And so this is one of those areas where you can start to see that. And then that creates that flywheel effect where you can start to move into those other areas that you see results a little bit later. And building on that, what's the payment model? Like who pays for that test currently? We're working through it. So being an early stage startup means that we're experimenting. I guess it's probably the right. best way to see it with these payment models. So the goal would be to get coverage across the different medical or insurance segments, right? So you look at where autoimmune diseases are impacted, they're impacted across the board, Medicaid, mm-hmm. commercial, and Medicare. And so we'd have, you know, as you would expect, a Medicaid, a commercial, and a Medicare strategy to try to basically gain coverage so that the insurers know that this is viable for them. The neat part about autoimmune, though, is, again, there's a a large amount of drug spend. So this could become something where a PBM sees value, right? Getting the right person on the right drug for their PBM membership. So we really are working across all those lenses. We've worked really well with the government as well. So we've got a LCD application to look at, again, Medicare coverage at the fee-for-service Medicare model. We know that the economics work well for a Medicare Advantage population as well. And so really it's all of those. Our goal is to make sure that this is something covered and it really doesn't impact the patient, especially in autoimmune. They do see a lot of costs, a lot of -of out-of-pocket costs because it is such a complex chronic disease. Our goal would be to really improve value at the insurance level and I've said it a couple of times, and remember, we started with the Affordable Care Act, we'd love to look at the value-based models as well, right. right? Where you're really paying for the test through the performance that it's able to achieve within a healthcare system. I don't know of many prescription value pathways that are as straightforward as what you're laying out, where you have on one side, a high cost, potentially high impact treatment, 
and a dearth of tests to identify where that high cost, potentially high impact in treatment is the best pathway. Is there an analog for you on the clinical side? Now, now the full disclosure, I have been out of the clinical world for a while, so I could be missing it, but I'm curious, is there, is there something that you have in mind, you and your strategic team for, oh, we need to get closer to that, or that's a good model for us? It's still nascent. So you have to take what I'm about to say with a grain of salt. So you're not out of practice, right? These things are all very much the ground floor, floor level, if at all. And so the only analog that I can give you that does resonate is in the world of oncology and precision oncology, right? So it's in the old trial and error ways, you had cancer that meant you cut it, you burned it, and you chemically treated it, right? Mm. And so no matter what, right? So I had surgery, I had chemo, and I had radiation on board. And the reality was we knew that you only maybe needed one of those. At most, maybe you needed two of them, but it was cancer. So you weren't going to stop. But precision oncology did what you described, right? It actually was able to characterize the tumor and the person to a way that I knew what the targeted therapy should be. And I could prescribe one of those. And we're starting to see the beginnings of value-based plans within oncology, right? So if you practice this way, if you meet these guidelines, you use these types of treatments, we'll give you that pay for performance contract versus the fee for service one. And you don't have to go through the burden or the, the burden of administrative prior offs and utilization management. So you, I can kind of almost gold card you to the right answer. That analog does resonate when we talk about autoimmune. I will be very transparent though. We don't have another one. So if someone goes, okay, tell me what else, right? That's it. So our, our goal is to be the next one in the world of autoimmune. That's both a great and sometimes terrifying place to be on the startup side, because without a clear analog in your treatment area, you're staking out all that space and it's a great opportunity, but it's also then like you're on the tightrope. There's no safety net there, something to back you up. So I totally understand that dance. Yes, it's, and I know you have a business background too, but it's truly the first mover disadvantage, right? You can actually write, uh, at least teach a class on it where there isn't a first mover advantage in these cases in healthcare. We've talked a bit about the payment model and the science. But as a clinician yourself, you know that integrating into workflows and clinical pathways is no small feat. And there used to be these anecdotal statistics when I was still practicing about it takes eight years to incorporate a new standard of care into the pathway and everything is lagged, I found in clinical medicine. That's no surprise. What's your thinking now on how you incorporate what's going to be a new way of treating these chronic diseases and diagnosing the appropriate treatment for the chronic diseases. What's that? What's the discussion like that currently? It's, you know, it revolves around kind of three key strategic approaches, right? So there's no one answer because it's exactly what you're saying. If there was, we would actually create a business model on that, right? Like I'm your, your physician and clinician adoption expert, and I'm going to get you there. But the first is it shouldn't come from me. Right. So I, I inherently have a bias. I'm chief medical officer of cypher medicine. If I tell you, you should do this as a physician, you're going to say, well, you know, we know why you're telling me to do this. And so it's finding those, what we call practice champions, right? So these are the ones that actually have the, the burgeoning practices. They have the backlog of patients. They're seeing those bad outcomes and we need them to start doing this through research. And so that's where we first really kind of build those relationships, right? As we think about validation for the test, we think about utility for the test, we're actually in a simulated research environment prospectively 
testing the test, but more importantly, we're testing what you're describing, adoption and implementation. So I actually sometimes in my research approach don't want just a transactional enroll the patient, let them come back, close out the site. I want the like feedback. How is this going with you? How else could you see yourself prescribing this? What are the barriers that you're seeing? So that's early on. The second behind that is then getting the physicians to actually be part of the design of the product and the solution. So I felt this, that's why I left. No one was asking me what I wanted when they were going through healthcare reform, right? They were right. like, okay, well, this is what it's gonna look. But physicians love that, right? So, you know, as you think about specificity and, and sensitivity, what are the numbers that you wanna see that you feel confident on? And then there's a reciprocal component of that because sometimes they'll say, well, I wanna see 90%. Why'd you say 90%? Well, that sounds like a good high number. You know, do you know that right now, your effectiveness in prescribing these drugs is at 30%, right? Mm -hmm. And so would 60% get you there? And having those types of quantitative conversations also helps. And then the last part is just the true tactics, right? It has to fit the work workflow from a timing and an ease standpoint, right? The physician burden is real. So can you integrate into the EMR? If you're a lab test like we are, are your turnaround times fast enough to meet the needs of the practice pattern. So if I wanna prescribe this drug, I can't wait six weeks for an answer for which drug to prescribe. I need to wait five days at most, and we know the clock is ticking. So if operationally and strategically, if we marry those kind of three approaches, then we see a little bit faster path than the eight years that you mentioned, which is pretty much the average. I'm struck by where you as the clinical strategist, if I'm reading your role right as the chief medical officer, that it's, you have so many threads coming together in this. It's not just prove the science, prove the efficacy of the test there, which is one big undertaking in and of itself. It's also that you could plan the party and nobody shows up. There's a payment model, there's usability, the turnaround times, all of these things. And I've said this before on the podcast that physicians in particular, all the clinical folks, but particularly physicians, are a really tough user base for anything. But if you add value to the practice, if you are helping their patients and helping them do more and giving them an edge in treatment for any of these things, cancer, chronic disease, what have you, it's almost impossible to get them to stop doing it, even if they perceive that value and it might not be there, which I won't name particular things that people see value in. The general surgery world is full of that kind of stuff. Just for one second, a slight divergence on your role as a chief medical officer. How do you pull all those threads together? How do you feel like you, do you feel like you have the autonomy to get into all these other pieces? Because this docs still have to use this stuff, no matter how effective it is in your research and your data, like you still have to get people to use it. Do you feel like that's your mandate within Cypher? A hundred percent. So I think that when I join companies, I make it explicitly clear that I'm not there for a transactional role or responsibilities. I'm there to change the practice of medicine. And it has to do what you're saying. I'll give you a really clear example that, that's my favorite one. I spent about the greater part of a decade in the dark side of health insurance, which actually turns out isn't dark side. So I was at Aetna um, really building out all the non-insurance products and services. And I thought we were doing great things. And I would keep hearing from people anecdotally, but they're like, nothing's changed. My insurance is my insurance. And they were right. We were coming up with innovative contracts. We were coming up with partnerships. We were doing a lot at the corporate level, but it wasn't translating to the end user. And it wasn't translating to actually changing the insurance. So 
we did things, we found partnerships, we developed products. We actually had tangible things like partnerships with leading consumer tech companies that all of a sudden you said, that's different. And that's what we want. And I think that the key is what you mentioned, which is inquiry. You have to ask the physician, how will this improve your practice? And then you find those things that will improve their practice, or you have to ask the health plan, how does this really improve your operations? How does this improve the value to your members? And if you can bring those together, then you have the adoption and the integration that you expect. Then it creates really that, that momentum of now you've impacted change and it's a different healthcare system. And the key is because our lives are so hard, you're not going to do that overnight at scale, but you're going to find little wins in geographic areas and you're going to want to land and expand on those. And so that is the integration component. That's where pulling the threads really become critical to me. Because if it was, hey, I just want to develop this product, there are lots of people that are better at product than I am, right? They can do that. They can launch a product. But the goal isn't to launch a product. The goal is to actually find a solution to these healthcare problems that we see patients are facing every day and physicians are burdened with because they don't have the right tools to solve those problems. What's the vision beyond what you're currently doing at Cypher? What's the, as much as you can say, like what's on the whiteboards, you know, at the, at the headquarters for that, that next layer out and that next layer out? I think it's, you know, it's two parts. And I think one is what I've just been describing, all these solutions, right? How do you bring these tools to the forefront of the physician practices? But the second part that actually makes me very excited, that's much more nascent, but is, is there, is the science that I just described, right? We're finding where people have molecular changes that are causing their disease state. And so if I just take that sentence and you were a pharma company, you would want to maybe start building R&D around these areas where we see that there's the beginnings pathologically or molecularly of disease. And so really, you know, the goal would be not only are we changing practice patterns for the better, but maybe we're actually changing therapeutics. And there are a few companies that have this kind of delicate balance between diagnostics and therapeutics. And I think we're trying to figure that out on our own too, right? And so we've developed a few partnerships with pharma where we're not going to be the ones to go in and really kind of, you know, look for this from an R&D standpoint, but we've identified it. So can I actually kind of validate your R&D blueprint and really be upstream? Because then you know where this is going. Maybe 10 years from now, our test is capturing those new treatments and whether someone would be responsive to new treatments that are coming out. And more importantly, maybe these new treatments are more effective for these patients. And so there's really that end-to-end -end aspect that we're super excited about, that the company really, as an early stage company that's privately held, that has the ability to be this dynamic, wants to really tease out further before we grow and scale to the point where we're one type of company. Data seems to be a big part of this in incorporating all of these different aspects into what that core genomic data would be that the kernel upon which the company sprouted. Talk to me about the data elements you currently have. And then like another sort of magic wand question, but what do you wish you had? Like, what are the things that you're excited about incorporating in the near term and medium term that we will likely have access to that we might not now? So I'm blessed in that we have a large scale registrational study aims that's enrolled over 8,000 patients. So these are patients that were enrolled prospectively, their blood was drawn, they received the PRISM RA test, and we have now the continuation of how they're doing, right? We have outcomes data. And uh, the, the reason I'm blessed is we've actually moved to the point where now we're getting one-year outcomes data, right? So we've had good enrollment, we've had good retention of in that enrollment. 
We also have started to test things, even you know, pre-reimbursement on commercial volume, right? So we have a sales team that's going out there and is getting docs to prescribe this, um, knowing that there's financial assistance so that there isn't a patient responsibility. And there's several thousand more tests that have gone out that way. So that kind of gives you the sense that, especially in rheumatoid arthritis, where you have 1.6 million Americans impacted by it, you have hundreds of thousands more being newly diagnosed, starting to see not only how well the test is performing so that we can tune the classifier and improve it, but more importantly, how the practice patterns are. When do you want to start engaging these patients? When do you see them, and I always say this, start to break bad or go good? And how do you make sure that the doc is trained and feels confident that they should in intercede with your test at that point before they break bad? And that's the data component that we love. We've been publishing on this, so we have even more clinical utility papers coming out on it. We have the data that comes from just even how we identify how to develop the classifier for the test. So all the sample collection that you can imagine retrospectively. So how did that work with the clinical pieces that you're marrying? We love all of that. The piece that I wish we had more of is that longitudinal value, right? Where you say that, like you, these health plans have it where they have 10 years of claims on how people have performed, right? They have consistency. So they know that the same patient has this longitudinal data for five years because you wanna see that, right? Why did they stop using this drug? When did they stop using it, right? When did they start improving? And actually what we're starting to see in the data that I love is sometimes the, the physician sees them, they prescribe them a new drug and they get worse, right. right? What causes that? When do you actually see deterioration of disease even with medical intervention? And how do you prevent that from ever happening, right? Those are like the never events that we always talked about in clinic, right? You never want to be the, the doc who saw the patient and actually made them worse off than better off. And so that data becomes exceptionally valuable when you look at it more historically and more longitudinally um, when you see it in, in both clinical and claim systems. How do you keep the team that you have now focused on those longer term engagements, given that the horizon seems far away sometimes? for a company like this? It's, you know, for me, it's rallying them the same way that I do, that, that you have to be in it for the long haul because healthcare is so slow to change and adopt. And then you have to remind them why healthcare is so risk averse. I made the mistake of telling you, hey, it could be therapeutics or diagnostics. If you combine those, it sounds like Theranos. Um, <laughs> that's when you don't want the portmanteau to come into play because there have been these missteps and there right. have been, wait, we got burned and I'm not going to get burned again. And, and so you have to keep people motivated in the long run, right? This isn't the world of technology and media and telecommunications where you see something every quarter that's novel and amazing. But if we do our jobs right, five years from now, everyone will say, why weren't we always doing this? Which is happening right. in oncology, right? So now you start to see people who are like, I have cancer and it's not the big C anymore. It's just the C because of all these new precision tests that have really started to penetrate that therapeutic area. And you instill hope in folks that will be able to do that in these adjacent areas. As we wrap, Sam, I'm always fascinated by the different ways the chief medical officer role can impact a startup. And as a clinician yourself and a CMO at a fast-paced growing startup, what advice do you have for companies in hiring their first CMO and with audacious goals like Cypher has to change established clinical protocols for diagnostics and treatment and things like that. Like, how do you riff for a second for me on, uh, on that? Like what you must get approached all the time about how that works from a strategic perspective, but maybe as to, to make it concrete, 
like when is the right time for a company to hire a CMO and what kind of things should they be thinking about when they bring somebody like that in? That's phenomenal. Yeah. I think that I've been blessed at a few different great companies, including Cypher, of course, where that timing was right, right? So you, you want to bring that chief medical officer in at a point when you have something tangible and meaningful for them, right? So you've already established the use case. You maybe have gotten through the validation exercises, right? So you know you have something. And now you're starting to get that point where you want really the three variables. You want approval, adoption, and access. And you know that those three are achievable, right? Because a good CMO candidate is going to test you on all three, right? Like, I don't know about the approval merit of this. And you say, well, look at all the validation papers that we have, right? Look at the beginnings of the analogs from a regulatory standpoint. You say adoption. Is there a need for it, right? The CMO candidate's going to know, right? And they're going to say, okay, you are actually fitting a gap. And this solves that, that gap, right? There's going to be activation energy and inertia, but I can get there. And then the access piece where I think a lot of CMOs sometimes maybe think that's not my area, but it should be, right? Physicians aren't supposed to be transactional. You're not supposed to say, I'm not prescribing this because it's not reimbursed. Therefore, come back to me when it's reimbursed. The physicians would say, this is not right that it's not reimbursed. Let's figure out why it's not. And let's work together on getting that reimbursement because this has value to the patient. And there are all kinds of things that we know are getting reimbursed that maybe shouldn't be. And so that doesn't become like a binary event. And I think you get those three variables and you get someone super excited about it and you give them meaningful responsibility to manage and lead in those three areas or very much be supporting it shoulder to shoulder with somebody else on the team. And all of a sudden you get someone who's going to be very loyal, very motivated and build a really high powered team to be able to pursue that type of business endeavor. Dr. Sam Iscarian, Chief Medical Officer of Cypher Medicine. Thanks for joining me today. Joe, greatly appreciate it. Very much so. Thank you. If you enjoyed the podcast, please leave us a review and rating. It helps others find us. To learn more about how AWS supports startups, please go to aws.amazon.com startups.